Our guest today is an internationally recognized expert in the field of clinical hypnosis and experiential psychotherapy. Dr. Jeffrey Zeig is also the founder, creator, and director of the Milton H. Erickson Foundation, which is one of the largest and most respected continuing education institutions in the field of psychotherapy. The foundation itself has over 140 institutes worldwide, and in addition to running a publishing company, Dr. Zeig is also the founder and creator of one of the largest and most well-known conference series in the field of psychotherapy, known as the Evolution of Psychotherapy. Dr. Zeig has also co-edited and authored over 35 books in the field of psychology and psychotherapy, self-authoring 10. Jeff, thank you so much for being here with us. It's, it's a, a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Honor and a pleasure to have you here. I'm sure I'll learn something. We'll learn a lot from you, I'm, I'm sure. I think a lot of people, especially creators, are curious. Um, in your work as a psychotherapist, as a writer, as someone that teaches other clinicians, when you look at people that are driven to greatness, have you found any underlying motivators that these folks are driven by? Is there any kind of psychological underpinning between themselves and what they're going after? Well, being driven is enough. Uh, and uh, that's certainly a characteristic that's uh, uh, common to uh, people who are very successful. But being driven to what? Being driven to make a contribution, being driven to extend knowledge, being driven to help people. There's a lot of different ways of being driven. And, uh, but based, the basic characteristic for being very successful is being driven in some way. Have you found, because I guess as human beings, we have these conventional motiva motivators, like you know, having a kid, having a conventional job, creating stability, uh, and oftentimes at least in the entrepreneurial world, a lot of that is unbalanced or imbalanced for a period of time. Is there any you know, unique aspect to the psychology behind people that choose to pursue that drive and sort of give up these, I don't know, evolutionary uh, necessities in a lot of ways as human beings? Well, you hope to maintain some balance between productivity and family and hobbies and avocations, interests. So whether people actually do that, I can't say that I do that completely well because I spend a lot more time on work than I do on avocations. Have you noticed in folks that pursue a passion, was, have there been any you know, underlying patterns of maybe even behavior disorders where they have this you know, mania that they're, they're driven to express or to fulfill on some level. Well, it's good to be a little hypomanic. If you're manic, you're out of control of your emotions and perceptions and judgment. If you're hypomanic, you have a lot of available energy, and that energy can be focused on doing something. So I'm, I'm, I have a hypomanic disposition. I uh, function well when there's a task, do the task, make sure that the task is done and, and completed. But uh, I can't say that that is necessarily an underlying theme in, in people who are really creative. It's a drive to do something that's novel, a drive to do something that's different, a drive to create something where nothing has existed before. And uh, that may be a strong human drive because we continue to make progress in various areas of uh, human endeavor. Do you personally feel that having a highly charged emotional state is part of putting out great work? Well, if you're, there's like a level, like let's say that I was creating a scale and the scale had 10 points. If you were 
three or below, you're probably not going to accomplish very much. If you stay between four and seven, that would be the ideal performing state. If it's an overlearned task, like records are set in the Olympics, they're not set in practice. In an overlearned task, when there's a lot of pressure, then that's an ideal performing state. So for being creative, a moderate level of arousal. If you have too much arousal, you're not going to be creative. Too much stress interferes with creativity. There needs to be an opportunity for things to fulminate, for things to happen, for things to develop on their own accord. From an evolutionary perspective, why are we so rigid as people? Why do, why do we develop this rigidity as we grow older and, and almost a, a pushing away of new ideas and new ways of thinking? Yeah. I don't know why. I'm not that good a psychologist, but I know that it's reflected in the words of Wordsworth, like shades of the prison house begin to close around the growing boy, meaning that we learn how to be more rigid and fixed and dogmatic in our patterns. And the patterns that we work uh, that work for us so effectively in childhood may not work as effectively in our social adult world, but we become habituated to patterns and uh, because uh, at one time they were very effective and at other times they don't have value. We are confined by tradition, but we're also encouraged by tradition to build something that breaks out of the mold of tradition and add something de novo, add something new to the world. So we have contradictory drives, a drive for certainty and a drive for uncertainty and a drive for um, doing something novel, drive for novelty, and uh, they, they oppose each other. There's benefits to certainty and there's benefits to novelty, but we uh, are constrained by limitations of our intelligence and limitations of our upbringing and limitations of our circumstance. We, we don't get out free to be able to just, you know, create wildly and uh, add things indiscriminately to our field of interest. And can you keep on pushing those limitations to find new things that can be of value and of interest and growth-oriented? As if we have a if we have a drive for certainty and we have a drive for novelty, we have a drive for growth and a, a drive to be more of who it is that we can be. And some people get stultified and that uh, by their bad habits, could be alcohol or philandering or could be smoking or you know, or spending too much money. We we get habituated very easily. And most of our habits, 90% of our habits, are really good and useful and make negotiating a complex world easier. It's just that some of our habits tend to be maladaptive and they don't work so well, but uh, we just keep them because of tradition and not because of uh, effectiveness in the world. So an, an addiction could, in a sense, maybe it has a negative stigma, but it could could be a good thing in some situations. If you can conceptualize the term of positive addiction by, by dictionary definition, addiction would be bad, something that has tolerance and something that has uh, a, uh, you, you build tolerance, so you start with a little heroin and it feels good and then you're using more heroin and more heroin because of the tolerance effect and because of the frequency effect. And then you're, uh, a slave to the habit rather than the author of the habit. Can we be an author of our habit? Can we be 
the inventor of our habits rather than using habits as uh, as a tradition. You know, as a creator yourself, as a writer, uh, there's that constant balance between perfectionism and embracing imperfection. How, how do you know when your work is done versus reworking it to death? Well, just that orienting yourself to perfection in a human endeavor is encouraging failure because you'll never be able to achieve perfection in a human endeavor. I mean, even shooting a rocket to a moon uh, can't be perfectly targeted. There has to be some variance for uh, the discrepancies that can happen along the way. So um, it's just a patently useless endeavor to try for perfection. If you're trying to, to perfection, you're always going to wind up coming short. If I can just point out to a person evocatively that no matter what they do in terms of trying for perfection, they're always going to be a failure in their own eyes. If I can make that come alive, um, you know, try to draw a perfect circle uh, on a piece of scratch paper that I give them and uh, nobody can accomplish that. And uh, isn't it nice that you could draw a circle that I would I would understand as a circle and it doesn't have to be the perfect circle. So can I find an experiential way of illustrating the necessity of, ex of accepting imperfections? That's, uh, that's so well put. Uh, I forget the name of this Japanese pottery, but the hallmark of this pottery style is to have cracks in the pottery? Tea bowls. The Japanese art of creating porcelains was advanced so well that they approached perfection. So in good, really good Japanese pottery, there's always a crack in the base that says that nothing perfect should exist uh, under Buddha. And in, in the art of creating Persian rugs, they would always put a flaw. I remember going to the castle in Dublin and seeing one of the art pieces where one of the characters had two left feet, right? Huh. And, and uh, I think it was a tapestry. I don't remember exactly, but I have a, a picture of it in my home office and that nothing perfect should exist under the king of England, so that artists, and even the Indians in creating sand paintings, put imperfections into them because nothing perfect should exist under the great spirit. So there's been a movement of creating imperfections to challenge the mistaken notion that people can do something perfectly uh, because uh, I don't uh, perfection uh, is not... Uh, all it's cracked up to be. Apparently not. Um, in Silicon Valley, there's an ethos to, especially in the beginning of building a company, that they say ship it. So basically just get it out as fast as possible. Figure out something that works and get it out and get feedback and iterate and get it out, you know, get more feedback. Uh, the idea is to not be perfect because you'll never release anything. You'll never get anything done. But just to make... Uh, flexible mid-course corrections that get you to the target. Exactly. It would be the same thing if I pointed to your nose. There would be a series of oscillations that would eventually get me to touch your nose, but it wouldn't be a perfectly straight line to get there, and I wouldn't be realizing these oscillations, but there would be a series of oscillations until I got to the target. So flexibility is a hallmark, the ability to utilize the circumstances, whatever happens. There's an opportunity not necessarily a deficit. Where's the opportunity that is apparent in this situation? How can I take advantage of it? Tom Peterson, in search of excellence, 
what's the difference between a good company and an excellent company? And the good companies would be doing a lot of research and trying to understand what could happen possibly. And the excellent companies would be using ready, fire, aim rather than ready, aim, fire. They would launch and then they would be so flexible that they could react and make something good happen. It's 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 really interesting you mentioned that because it, it seems that there's a parallel between human evolution and the evolution of an organization. Definitely. You, you get that, you know, maturation, you grow, there's more people, decisions have more impact, you know, those mistakes have greater detriment and then it becomes about a culture of optimization versus a culture of innovation. And there's that classic question, well how as you evolve as a human or as you evolve as a corporation or a company, how do you maintain that spirit of, of childlike innovation? You know, yeah, and flexibility. I re remember, you know, I spent I don't know, hundred hours or more with Milt Merrickson privately, and then part of teaching seminars that he was organizing. And what I remember about the private time is that he told me an infinite range of flexibility stories: flexibility of children, flexibility of adults, flexibility of animals, flexibility of cultures. And either I was one of the most rigid students who ever came to him, and I needed to get this lesson of flexibility. Or this was a theme in Ericsson that that you would have a lot of requisite variety, a lot of ability to adapt to changing circumstances. And whatever the circumstances were, having a flexible approach was going to probably give you the best advantage in the situation. So I, I hope that somewhere along the way I've incorporated uh, that into my repertoire and uh, I don't have to think about uh, what can I do to be flexible at this moment. It just uh, is a, a, an outcome of the situation. Hmm. It kind of leads to the question of, you know, to to go down the path that you've gone down, go down the path of a lot of people, which is to pursue this this greatness or this work or a, a significant amount of repertoire uh, based in their career. How do you balance from a mental health perspective passionate work versus workaholism you know is there is there a line there or you know how do you think about the dichotomy of those two things well my friends would probably say that i was more workaholic <laughs> and i would say that i was more balanced and somewhere between the two there would be truth probably more in my friend's perspective than my perspective uh, because uh, i get so much reward from exploring the six full-time jobs that I have as being an entrepreneur and being a psychotherapist and being a conference organizer and being a publisher and being a teacher and being an author. I have a lot of, of jobs and somehow I can do most of them more than adequately. So I'm a kid in a candy store and uh, continuing to do those things, but I still take time for my relationship, for my health and for uh, my hobbies. And uh, I, I uh, you know, try to be excellent at teaching and excellent at writing, but I certainly don't have the capacity to be excellent at speaking Spanish, for example, or to be excellent at playing bridge, which is another one of my hobbies. So I just do the best that I can. There's some things I just do because I enjoy them and not because it's a pursuit of excellence. A lot of creators, uh, especially at any phase of the journey, they, they face a lot of isolation and loneliness during the work process. Uh, a lot of people may be introverted, some people may be extroverted. Uh, how would you advise people that do feel pain during that isolation and loneliness to maintain their sanity? Well, it's probably true that 
being creative is a collaborative effort and uh, that it's not just something that you do in the privacy of your own study, but the, that it's the interaction with other people that can be instrumental in generating creativity. And uh, having a moderate level of anxiety can be instrumental in generating creativity. Too little anxiety or too much anxiety, and it'll probably interfere with the creative process. So you want to be able to balance the equation and, um, you know, like what are the circumstances in which creativity can emerge and probably being collaborative or in a good environment or being relatively relaxed or having enough sleep or enough nutrition. And uh, these are uh, uh, having drive and having uh, a knowledge base and relying on what you understand from other similar disciplines. All of these factors uh, have a multivariate effect in stimulating creativity but there isn't one thing to do that will prompt you into being creative. But um, the series of, of things may give you an advantage for something creative to happen, and then you'd need to be able to recognize it and have some way of affecting it once it came to you. So creativity is a funny area in psychology because I think that 1% of all psychological research is dedicated to creativity, but it's still an underexplored area in academic psychology. There's not that many researchers and not that many research papers that explore human creativity, even though it's such an important process. I was just remembering by way of thought about uh, a moment of insight about creativity. I took a class in acting because I thought that would help me to be a better psychotherapist. The, the job was to pass around a ball in the class so we could kick it, we could throw it, we could bounce it, we could do all kinds of things. And then the instruction was to stop being creative. Right? Now, now, that was an interesting instruction because no matter what we did, we were creative. And uh, it, it was impossible to stop being creative. So uh, normally, in the terms that Jixin Macaulay talks about in his book about creativity, these are people who shifted a paradigm people who are like Darwin, somebody who's really changed the paradigm in a historical way. But the, it's the creativity of everyday life that is uh, the, something that we should extol. You know, how can we do things? How can we drive to work in a little different way or listen to a little different type of music or find a way of entering the uh, workplace in a, in a different style than we've done before or dress in a little different way? How can we add creativity into the warp and woof of everyday life so we're not just um, slaves to fashion or slaves to habit, but that we keep on prompting ourselves to do things that are more creative? And probably that would be uh, the stimulus, the ground at which in which creativity can grow most fertilely, that you keep on stimulating it inside yourself in the everyday fashion of, of creativity. Is, is getting into a state of trance, like through hypnosis or meditation, a way that people can kind of rid themselves of debilitating, you know, anxiety or overthinking and get into that yeah. creative state? Or? If you, you know, probably uh, in research, walking would be uh, an activity that would be promoting creative realizations. But meditating can be another avenue that prompts people to be creative. Sleep can be an area that prompts people to be creative. We can 
get creative ideas by sleeping on them and uh, uh, letting our quote-unquote unconscious mind generate some solutions that we hadn't thought of before. So there's no right way of uh, stimulating creativity. There's if you Google it, there's there's a lot of different ways of stimulating creativity, and all of them have some value. That's interesting. Do you find there to be an optimal level of neurochemicals that need to be in balance while you're in a creative state? Is there in the little bit I know about neuro uh, neurological research? There's nothing that has been identified to deal with the different subtypes of creativity. It's not like you can say that you're uh, amygdala is quiet, or your amygdala is activated, or your uh, 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 anterior cingulate is active or not active. There's different types of creativity, but in my limited knowledge, there's nothing that neurologically indicates that somebody is designed to be a creative person. Do you have rituals that you engage in you know, prior to writing a book, for example, that help you get into that state of creative awareness? And I, I use a process of mirroring. So I say, okay, psychotherapy, that's a communication art. We want to have impact. Okay, marketing, that's a communication art where you want to have impact. Okay, movie making, that's a communication art where you want to have impact. Music, composing music, this is about having impact. So what I do is I expand my knowledge base. I try to understand how does a director think? What does a film director think? How does a set designer think? How does a poet think? And uh, if I can understand something about other people's uh, orientation, other people's field, even other people's creative process, which is pretty hard to be able to deconstruct, then I can be able to use that. But it's more like being a corporate raider, looking into other fields of communication, bringing ideas into practice in psychotherapy. Let's say in music you have an idea of theme and variation. We are all familiar with this, but we don't necessarily pay attention to it. The theme is presented in the beginning of the musical score. It's repeated, but it's repeated with a slight variation, usually at the end of the theme. And if you listen to popular music on the radio and you have the consciousness to attend to this, you hear it. Now, it's a theme and variation that brings something alive. If I'm doing work with hypnosis and I want to suggest relaxation, then this principle that I can take from music, I can apply into the warp and woof of doing hypnotic induction. You can feel at ease. You can let yourself feel relaxed. You can let yourself be comfortable inside your body. It's uh, usually in sets of three for some reason. Three turns out to be a magic number, although in music composition, two seems to be the magic number theme, and then the theme with a slight variation to allow the impetus, the the emotion of the theme to come alive and into the listener. So, okay, theme and variation, that works in music. I take theme and variation. I apply it in psychotherapy with hypnosis or, or not with hypnosis. Yeah, it's so interesting because in art or music especially, a lot of the greats don't necessarily think about their composition when they create great work, but you know, post-creation, when someone breaks it down, a lot of times it does follow many of the rules of great music theory. Well, there's discipline and there's spontaneity. So spontaneity is a byproduct of discipline in many regards. So if I, I went to the film school in Krakow in Poland and I tried to 
understand how a film student understands how to create a movie. Let's say you have a simple device like the hero of the movie comes in from the left side of the screen. The villain in the movie comes in from the right side of the screen. That is a device that's taught to film students because we read from left to right and left to right becomes good and right to left becomes bad, except if you're in an Arabic or Israeli world where, where the reverse is true. Now, if I ask the film student, why do you bring in the main character from the left, they could immediately tell me. But when I asked an actual film director, why do you do that? It was just, this is what we do. It had become so ingrained, the discipline that was learned, like the discipline of a poet learning how to use metaphor or analogy. This is practice, the discipline of a writer learning how to use a suspensive sentence with free modifiers. This is practice. Let's practice in class writing a three-page sentence, make the sentence meaningful, but make it last three pages long. These are exercises, and then once that discipline becomes ingrained, then the spontaneity emerges out of the discipline. Uh, that's fascinating. W I guess when you think about it from that frame of mind, when you look at, let's say, film, like the rule of thirds or the golden ratio, um, moving from left to right, and it has this sort of metaphorical implication to it, why is that hitting us with such profound almost instinctual response. Well, it is instinctual. The instinct to communicate is based in representations, based in signals. A dog barks, and that bark could mean come close, or it could mean stay away. So human communication is built on a foundation of using representations. So if you have uh, she's showing an airplane on a, TV on a TV screen or on a movie screen, and the airplane is going from the right side of the screen to the left side of the screen, you know that the character is going away. If it's moving from the right side of the screen to the left side of the screen, you know that the character is coming home. The author doesn't need to say to you, now the hero is going on an adventure. Just shows the action moving from right to left on the screen, and we understand immediately because we have a representational language. So, okay, representational language. I use representational language in therapy. Somebody says, I, I'm depressed today, and I could say, well, you seem a little sad. And that would be an empathic reflection showing that I understood the communication of the other person. But I could say, if the person said, I'm depressed today, I could say, well, you're feeling a little... I cover myself, I cover my eyes, I cover my hand, I bring my hands closer into my body, and I'm communicating by using a representation. So this is part of a source of my own creativity in doing therapy, trying to use representations rather than using words, because I believe that representations speak to deeper sensors in the brain, and representations become more memorable in an experiential way. What is the goal? Is the goal to give somebody information? Is the goal for somebody to have an evocative experience? And a lot of therapy is based on helping somebody to have an evocative experience of enablement. People say, I can't stop smoking, and I want them to know that, of course, they can. But I might want to communicate that with a gesture more than communicate that with words. It's almost like you're hitting them on a, on a reptilian level rather than a, a purely intellectual you know, appeal. Yes, because we all have uh, a, a substructure of using representational communication. 
If you uh, beckon to somebody with your finger, you're asking somebody to come close. If you push away with your palm, you're asking for someone to distance themselves. You don't have to say the word. We respond to the representations. We respond to stop signs, too, and green lights, and we respond to speed limit signs, and the, the shape of the sign indicates something about what we need to do when we're driving. So we live in a world where we don't necessarily pay attention to the representations that guide our social and uh, psychological interaction, but these representations are there. So I say, okay, well, if that was true of our evolutionary past, can I take something from our evolutionary history, dust it off, and bring it into a psychotherapy session to empower the communication, to make the communication become more alive, to make it become more vibrant? to make it more evocative rather than informative. When you hit people on that deeper structure, that limbic response, I, I hate to ask the question why, but... There's a difference between an algorithm and a heuristic. A heuristic is a simplifying assumption. Simplifying assumption for playing chess is control the center squares early in the game. Simplifying assumption for Tress is to develop your knight and your bishop early in the game, castle the king. These don't necessarily lead you to a winning position, but they're more likely than not. So when we're in the world of heuristics, we're in the world of possibilities. We want to create a possibility. Just because Picasso paints Guernica, 1937, doesn't mean that everybody will get the felt sense that war is hell. But it it was the representation that Picasso was presenting in Guernica, one of his masterpieces that can, but doesn't necessarily give you the felt sense. If you add two and two, you get four. Then you're in the world of mathematics and science, where you have a clear um, outcome that's in the objective world. When we're in the communication world, we're in the world of subjectivity. Just because I raise my arms doesn't mean that... Uh, You'll feel that I'm being more open to your influence, but it, it's the intention of creating a possibility through a representation that's not clear, it's not scientific, it's not mathematical, it's just a possibility, it's an artistic device. Like a writer would learn rhetorical devices like using metaphor or using simile. And in your creative writing class at the university, You'd create a hundred metaphors, and you'd be practicing creating metaphors. And then it would be the hope that when you were writing, metaphors would just flow, and uh, it would be uh, something that would not have not require conscious deliberation. If Shakespeare says uh, Juliet is the sun, I don't think he was thinking to himself, "Now I'll use a metaphor." Somehow. Shakespeare trained himself to think strategically in a series of steps to get to a point. And this was one of the things that um, intrigued me in 1973 when I started studying with Milton Erickson. And I had the opportunity to meet a master at the craft of communicating psychotherapeutically. And one of the things that he did, one of the devices that he used was certainly using metaphor, uh, representational communication, but another device that he used was using strategic communication. Okay, strategic communication, that makes sense in music. You have a theme and then you develop it strategically. It makes sense in movies. You have a scene and you develop it strategically. Can I do the same thing? Can I train myself to communicate? D, 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 dum, ba, dum. 
set up, set up, set up, intervene, follow through with a reason, a motivation for doing the action that's intended. And uh, so the discipline is what leads to the spontaneity, but it's only after you practice the discipline and the discipline becomes automatic to you, then you're able to add more complexity into the situation. You're able to add more elaborations into the situation to make it even richer. You know, why is Steven Spielberg such a great director? It's because he's capable of putting elaborations into his movies that a wonderful director like Alfred Hitchcock didn't have access to at the time that he was practicing movie making. Is the process of feeling feeling happier or reframing a bad situation as a good one, that also seems like it might be you know, very similar to that experiential dynamic in therapy where you have to engage continually in it to think that way. Yeah. It would be nice if you could say to a depressed person, cheer up, it's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, we're alive, the trees are blossoming, and it's a great moment to enjoy nature. And if you could say that to a depressed person and they would just respond effortlessly to it, just give them advice. But there's something that has to just happen, something that's a discrete jump from the imposing reality of depression to the more adaptive reality of joy. And there's some things that just can't be instructed, and you have to establish a background, a basis for something to emerge out of the situation. And so uh, more than most therapists, I practice on the evocative side of communicating rather than on the scientific side of here's the protocol to use. If the person has a social phobia, there's a 10-step protocol to use, and you just apply that protocol. But um, what I'm trying to do is to bolster my own creativity and to encourage uh, the client to be similarly creative and finding a way out of the limiting conundrum into a more adaptive reality. It was interesting that you mentioned therapy being, or effective therapy being premised on the subjectivity and ambiguity, and that's actually what makes it powerful. So it, it almost isn't going to be empirically validated because it seems to rely on this sort of ambiguity between two people. Is that... Um, you know, medicine can be done more as, as a science. There's got to be a proper way of setting a fracture or there's proper medicine to use for a particular pathogen. So it's cause and effect. You know, you know what the problem is. You know a nostrum that you can use, and you know that that nostrum statistically has an effect. In psychotherapy, because psychotherapy emerged out of medicine, it was 1885 when Freud first became interested in the psychological aspects of medicine, and the field of psychotherapy began. It's a relatively young discipline in, in human endeavor. Uh, so um, the, there's been an attempt to make psychotherapy an empirically validated form of communication, is that there's a proper protocol to use if the person has depression or if the person has anxiety, if the person has a bad relationship, just follow this protocol. And you know from scientific research that more than not, people respond positively. Um, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, uh, it's uh, where does science and art intersect? You might know the correct medicine if you're a physician to give to a patient, but the way that you give that medicine to the patient may influence the response that the patient has. 
You know, if you say to the patient, you're a tiger, you've been a tiger all of your life, right now you feel like a lamb, here's a medicine that I'm going to give you. Within a short period of time, I think this medicine is going to help you to be the tiger that you once were again. So then you're using a metaphor to deliver a scientific device because you know that this will change their neurochemistry by virtue of giving them this nostrum. And do you feel like it's some level of that certainty that treats a lot of these conditions, that sense of, oh, this has produced results already, so therefore it will produce results well, in that's me? that's the certainty of science compared to the possibility of an evocative art. An evocative art doesn't necessarily have certainty. Just because you draw a black line on a canvas doesn't mean that some that all of the viewers of that black line are going to have the same felt sense about the meaning of that black line. The evocative nature of a representation just creates a possibility for the person to respond to. It's not cause and effect. It's just a, a an, an indication with the hope that the artist is portraying something. It's not like saying e equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the velocity of light squared, and then you have a number, and that number is clear and unambiguous, and that leads you to scientific discovery. So um, we have both science and art, and they can be cooperative with each other so that art can use some of the knowledge that's gained by science, and science can use some of the experiential realizations that are endemic to art. For sure. It's a tandem bicycle that helps us go places. A tandem bicycle. Yeah. Let's let's uh, use two seats and uh, empower things in, um, in more vivid ways. So people get very religious about their perspective, and the scientists want science to persevere, and the artists want evocative art to persevere, and we should uh, be intelligent enough to take the best of both I always thought it was interesting how siloed we get as human beings, even as you know, two or three years go by. We we take our schools of thought or our in group, and we just sort of, you know, uh, remain in there almost dogmatically uh, to a point. It's the true innovators that are able to kind of step out from that logical, you know, correlation with their peers and say, "Hey, let me go back to first principles and let me rethink this from square one, and you know, head in a direction that might not make sense by this group, but." Uh, let me experiment and head into the unknown. Yeah, those are remarkable people who are capable of looking at the foundation of something and coming up with something novel at the very foundation of uh, an art or a discipline or uh, a game. And uh, suddenly uh, new rules emerge out of that. Those are uh, truly creative people with a big C. We're all creative people, but uh, there are some people who are really remarkable about their creativity within their discipline. Indeed. And the reason I had mentioned that certainty within an empirical field like medicine or science, I think a lot of creators, even when they're on their journey, that that fear of the unknown is is pervasive. It's prevalent. Uh, they deal with, you know, whether it's in the beginning when they have no backing, when, you know, they're building something from nothing while they're going through and they're separating themselves from everyone else, there's that constant fear of isolation maybe, or that fear of uncertainty. And I, I thought it'd be just interesting to hear, you know, what your thoughts were on the on the fear of going into the unknown. Why do we fear that so much? You know, what can we do to, well, to lessen that? Certainty is uh, human, it's part of human nature. We all have a desire to seek certainty, but there's areas of life in which certainty just doesn't exist. And certainty will exist 
in scientific formula and mathematical equations, but certainty might not exist in a relationship. Certainly, certainty might not exist in a creative act. So we have to combine our drive for certainty with our drive for exploration, for doing things that are uncertain. And uh, we have both human needs, the need for certainty and the need for invention. And uh, we are consistently uh, following both masters and trying to integrate them, but there's not a clear balance of, of things, except if you're in the world of mathematics and science and you can have certainty. It's kind of ironic that on one level, human beings crave novelty, and on the other end, they're afraid to, to pursue it. It's very much yeah. like a catch-22. have to make a jump. Like, uh, I say to people, you judge a success by the size of the people, the boulders that people throw at you. When Beethoven launched the Fifth Symphony, he was stoned by the critics. The Fifth Symphony is one of the great masterpieces of Western music, but it was not accepted by the critics when Beethoven launched it. So Beethoven, in his um, particular genius, of his musical genius, was capable of doing things that his predecessors hadn't. He was trained by Haydn. Haydn, certainly one of the great composers in history, but Beethoven was able to do things in music, creating a romantic era in music that Haydn wasn't able to do, even though Haydn wrote 100 symphonies and Beethoven wrote nine. Kind of reminds me a bit of uh, Dostoevsky's personal journey. It's a problem. That, it's a problem, uh, yeah. That, that uh, the, uh, you know the pioneers because they're the people who are either ignored or the ones with arrows in their back, but they keep on pursuing something. It's like Don Quixote, a quixotic journey where you're pursuing something that you uh, know it has a reality to you but is not necessarily popularly uh, accepted. As, as a creator, why, why is it important to tackle these challenges? What does that challenge do for us as human beings when we try to overcome it? Yeah, I, I can't say that I know for sure, but in me it would be a drive to innovate, to make something happen differently than has happened before. And uh, certainly the, the power of tradition, let's just do what is traditionally uh, prescribed and is that's a very strong power and uh, it's it's uh, something there's something comforting about staying within the world of tradition but then to say okay innovation where can we do something and add something at a fundamental level and uh, to a field that uh, keeps on lumbering on perhaps like a deathless dinosaur just continuing its path and you want to stand in the way and say, okay, well, we could go this way. We don't have to just lumber on in the same slavish way. And uh, you might get eaten by the dinosaur, but you'd have to know that you could make a recovery and pursue the innovation that you want to pursue without necessarily feeling ashamed of your of your uh, unacceptance. Or, you know, the, the people who are creative in a big sea with... Uh, people like Dostoevsky or people like Tolstoy were taking literature into uh, an area where literature hadn't lived before, and they were making innovations that uh, their predecessors hadn't cons considered. If you take somebody like Cervantes writing Don Quixote, which I happen to be reading right now, every literary device that modern novelists use can be found in a 17th century uh, uh, 
novel and amazing testament to the remarkable creativity of Cervantes as a writer. And then I think, okay, well, if Cervantes could seed something, like in the beginning of Don Quixote, there's a reference to the windmill that is obscure. Now, if you had read Don Quixote or you know something about Don Quixote tilting at windmills, you're awakening a representation. So this is providing a prime that awakens a future representation. Uh, every great movie maker uses this, great composers use this, but psychotherapists never think about doing this. And the only psychotherapist that I've ever seen who actually did that was Milton Erickson, probably because he had a felt sense of what he was reading and he could see that providing an earlier prime awakens a later representation. Now that's thinking deeply strategically and it would be perfectly understandable for a novelist to be able to do that because they can write and then go back to the beginning and insert something that is a reference to a future theme. It's very difficult to do in, in, in an interaction, but okay, so I can see that. Is that something that I can do? Can I practice this and make it into a discipline so that it eventually becomes something that I do spontaneously to make an idea come alive? Uh, creating a, a, a seed, a prime. It's not so different than listening to music where the uh, orchestra to play would play the themes that you're going to hear in a medley before the curtain opens that makes you familiar with the music to follow because familiarity is a great motivator in human behavior. So you like things that are familiar and the uh, composer creates a familiarity with the prelude to the opening of the play. Hmm. I wonder what's happening on a neurological level with that, if it's reducing limbic fric friction. You know, is it, could you say that visualization is also a form of priming and seeding? If you later want to engage in the said activity or behavior, is that a way of like reducing cognitive effort? in something? Or? Well, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it makes perfect sense to me what you're saying. Reduce cognitive friction. Uh, I'll remember to write that in a future book. I'm no, uh, I'm no neuroscientist. I just, just came to mind. But, no, it was uh, a very good thought. Yeah, um, re reduce cognitive friction. Because what you're saying is it's super interesting that seeding and uh, priming, I guess they're not one and the same. They're a bit different. A little different. Priming is more of a scientific term that has been studied. One of the great researchers, John Barg at Yale, B-A-R-G-H, is the person who has uh, done most of the research into priming effects. And uh, seeding is more the common term that might be used in literature. Foreshadowing would be used in literature. You foreshadow a, a something that's going to happen in the future creating familiarity with the idea that activates the idea, reduces the cognitive friction when the idea is eventually presented. That is something that probably Sophocles did in writing plays, but it's a convention. And that device of seeding something could be used in everyday communication. could use that if you were talking with your children about responsibility or about discipline or whatever it was that you were going to talk about, that you seeded the idea. Is that guaranteed to leave an effect? Not. It's just the hope that the prompt will have a possibly intend, an intended effect 
But it's a possibility. It's not a probability. It's not mathematics. It's just um, human possibility. Hmm. I, I wonder if priming can be used as a tool if you're a creator, possibly seeding or priming uh, either a user or a viewer of your content to you be introduced to that earlier on, maybe even you know months ahead of time. I wonder if that would maximize the effectiveness when it comes time to introduce that material or that experience to the person. Yeah, if you would prime the idea of social responsibility in some way, and then a week later you'd come back and ask somebody to do a socially responsible action, uh, probably there would be an increase even a week later in the person actually agreeing to do the socially acceptable, socially desirable action, even though the prime had happened uh, and was no longer in the consciousness of the person. But I'm not an expert uh, on this area, but it's an area of inquiry. And it's an area of inquiry like uh, we imagine in architecture that if you uh, walked into a shopping center, if you walked into a church, the entryway would prime something about your experience as you walked into the shopping center. There's so many unconscious effects that we're subject to, and we seem to resent them as being manipulative. Like there's um, a, a, an, an effect that happens in shopping centers, the Gruen transfer. Gruen was a famous architect, and the Gruen transfer is that there's a device in a shopping center that slows you down this a little that creates a little bit of uncertainty so that you slow down your pace in the shopping center and you're more open to buying things. Now, we don't pay attention to that, but the architect does pay attention to that. And as far as my knowledge of the Gruen transfer is, Gruen rejected his invention because he thought it was too manipulative. But we're all manipulated, and uh, priming is one example of how people are manipulated and probably the people in marketing know more about this than I do, and the people in music making know more about it from their particular perspective, and novelists uh, use this all the time, playwrights use this all the time. Chekhov, the Russian playwright, said that if you, if the curtain opens in the first act and there's a gun over the mantelpiece, probably you're not even paying attention to it, but if there's a gun over the mantelpiece, somebody's going to get shot by the third act, that the tightness of the writing, the density of the writing, is that there's no free things, there's no extraneous things. Everything is there to advance the story. The same thing if you see a movie by Steven Spielberg, uh, everything is there as an element to advance the story. It's not um, that you just have beautiful scenes because the director likes them. Everything has to add to the, to the development of the storyline. And that's a very difficult thing to do in human communication, but okay, I see something I like, I practice it to the best extent that I can do it in terms of the limitations of my capabilities. But um, what I'm trying to do now is to write about devices, devices that are common to art, maybe give them a different name like using representations or using elaborations or using component parts or using strategic development. So uh, if you were studying literature and you looked up 30 rhetorical devices, or if you study speech writing and you look up de rhetorical devices, you find on the internet that there's a series of rhetorical devices. 
Now, therapists don't tend to think about using artistic devices in creating therapy. They tend more to think about using empirically validated protocols and, okay, just tell me what to do in this situation and give me the protocol, I'll follow the yellow brick road, rather than treating each problem as, it's, as if it's unique and different and requires a uniquely individualized approach. So taking things from art and making them come alive in communication is something that I practice doing uh, to the extent that I'm capable of doing it. I, I wonder if, like you had mentioned, even marketers, I wonder if a lot of people are conscious of the amount of subtlety that goes into their craft. Because I, I was just thinking as you were talking about this, even our backdrop right, provides like yes, a, a sense exactly of right. legitimacy to our conversation. Absolutely. If we were in a laundry room right now, it might not have... Uh, the same effect, it would yeah. be a bit different. Um, it's almost, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like almost priming and seeding and metaphorical environment variables are, are important in the experience and having an experiential moment yes. with, with someone. Yes, and choosing this environment for our discussion was intentional, but, um, you know, the practiced effect, like, we know that um, if you paint the walls of a restaurant red, people will probably purchase more in the restaurant. They're not necessarily aware of the effect, and that might not be true in Europe or in Asia, but tends to be more true in the United States that the background has an effect, and uh, but the effect can't be quantified. You can't say that it's definitely true that if you paint the walls of a restaurant red, People are always going to spend more money. You can't. It, 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 it's, there's a, a more of a likelihood, more of a possibility, but the insidious nature of these devices—maybe not so insidious—but the devices that are used are not used to prompt people to be consciously aware. If a uh, writer is using a suspensive sentence and building a flow within a sentence. He's using a device, but probably the writer has practiced that device thousands of times, and then the sentence just comes out to use the device, and then somebody else coming along says, oh, this is a suspensive sentence with three modifiers. But to the artist, they're just writing. If uh, Hemingway is using short, terse sentences to have an effect, but Faulkner is using complex sentences to have an effect. But um, writers tend to be more exploratory. What is possible to do in communication that no writer has done before? What is it possible for an artist to do that no artist has done before? How can an artist uh, take the concept from painting chiaroscuro, the, the con contrasting light and dark to create a density and to create three dimensions? And can a writer use that same technique in literature to create more density in writing? So um, this is an area of inquiry for me. How can I take things from other communication arts and use those to make myself a more effective psychotherapist for my client? And uh, it's not a commonly uh, accepted area of inquiry because more of psychotherapy is based in a medicalized version where Things have to be empirically validated to be used. But um, somebody has to uh, strike a chord for innovation. And uh, 
endure the criticism that necessarily comes along with it. The difference between an artist and sort of the average person is that the artist will see great beauty or or great pain where others see nothing at all. Uh, do you, you know, as a writer and I guess as an artist yourself, do you feel that to be someone that is creative, to be someone that puts out artistically impactful work uh, requires a bit of pain and suffering or, or the ability to endure pain and suffering because not everything that you do is right and not everything that you do is going to be accepted and understood and and uh, activated. I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, somebody uh, into the distant future may discover something that I wrote about and make it into a more scientific reality. But right now, my my job and my goal is to explore the possibilities that are inherent in communication. Most hypnosis, because I'm renowned for using hypnosis, but most hypnosis is done by a protocol. There's a protocol that you use for induction, a protocol you use for the therapy. And if you pick up a textbook, many of the textbooks are written like instructional manuals. Here's 10 inductions to choose from, memorize one of these. Here's a deepening technique to choose from, memorize that. Here's therapy that you do if somebody has pain, use this protocol. And so it's it's a, a, a um, way of being able to evaluate the effectiveness of a protocol because it's easy to research when you make things into a series of linear steps. But um, my it's not my area of inquiry. It's uh, something that I respect and uh, try and understand. But I'm trying to look for other possibilities, things that I can take that um, add a level to the communication that hasn't existed before. Uh, as arguably, you know, one of the leading authorities on hypnotherapy, how important is the unconscious mind in eliciting? A change or an experience, an evocative experience from someone? Well, if the experience is evocative, it requires a discrete shift. Like you can say to somebody, be responsible, and here's the reasons for being responsible, and here's what being responsible will get you. But there's a moment when the person has to suddenly realize, I can be responsible. I have been responsible. I will be responsible. And that can't be codified in uh, linguistically. It's like a felt sense that you suddenly realize that this is within your capability. So it's a prompt that leads to a discrete jump into another uh, perspective point, another interpersonal way of being, another way of thinking, another way of perceiving. And suddenly that just happens. So in order for there to be an evocative realization, there needs to be a discrete shift, I think. Does that discrete shift happen instantaneously or it is it It happens over? automatically. Like um, suddenly you realize that you're a good mother or suddenly you realize that you're an effective worker in, in the field or suddenly you realize that you're a good friend. And uh, we have a series of defining events that happen. Bong! Okay, suddenly I realize that I can be a good friend or a good mentor or a good uh, follower. And uh, it, we don't necessarily categorize those defining moments. Like just because I had a daughter and uh, doesn't necessarily mean that I felt like a father. There was a, a moment uh, after 
get, having my daughter that suddenly I realized I could be a father. And uh, th there's like a, a discrete shift that in initiates the realization of a role. But um, if we could say that that's unconscious or we could say that there's an automaticity. And again, John Barg, who I mentioned before, is one of the leading experts about the automaticity of everyday life. Some things just have to happen discreetly and other things can be built on. Like uh, you learn Spanish and I've been trying to learn Spanish and there's a moment when you suddenly realize that you're capable of having a conversation in Spanish. And right now I'm not capable of that. I'm capable of having a very rudimentary conversation, but I'm not capable of teaching in Spanish. But there would be a defining moment when suddenly I realized that I'm capable and uh, that I'm uh, bilingual and uh, I'm, my thinking, but I'm not perfectly clear about it, is that there's a discrete jump Something that's unconscious means that there's a moment of automaticity where something happens, and that could be called an unconscious experience. But when we divide conscious and unconscious, we tend to reify the terms and t make them into things, like now I'm having a conscious conversation with you, or now I'm consciously using strategic development, or now I'm consciously using a representation. But uh, really... Um, there's a, a combination of factors that are intentional and automatic. So I don't want to reify this idea of the unconscious as being something that exists as a thing. We all respond. We can't, you know, one time we had to speak clearly and we'd say dink wawa if we wanted a drink of water and we didn't have the capacity to say I'd like a drink of water. But when we were really young, we'd have some representative communication, some attempt at communication until that became unconscious, and then we can just string our concepts together. So unconscious meaning the automaticity of everyday life. I don't have to think about driving a car. I drive the car. I listen to a lecture. I listen to music. I think about planning my day. I'm capable of adding more density by virtue of the automaticity of everyday life. What hypnosis teaches me to do is to use the totality of communication. So how can I use hesitations? How can I use proximity? How can I use gesture? How can I use strategic development? How can I use metaphor? How can I use emphasis or underemphasis? You can relax. You can be at ease. And that's a rhetorical device. I forgot what it's called. It has a Greek name to it but a rhetorical device of using underemphasis. And so, okay, um, what hypnosis teaches me to do is how to use the totality of communication to have an effect. And uh, that would be more like an art than it would be like a science. And uh, that's a very jaundiced, very unique, idiosyncratic view of hypnotic processes because usually you think about Hypnosis is anesthetic. You hypnotize the person. You give them suggestions. They get over their problem by virtue of the uh, in, uh, the insertion of positive suggestions into an area where previously there had been limitation. And hypnosis is mostly practiced like that around the world. But I think about hypnosis as a form of influence communication that encourages me to use more output channels, the direction of speech. 
like there was an experiment that Erickson did, Milton Erickson did, where he had the president of the American Psychiatric Association visiting. He had a patient. The patient was known to have motion sickness. And Erickson wanted to demonstrate the direction of speech alone was, was capable of causing a physiological effect. So he did an induction with the man. Again, the man is known to have motion sickness. The man has his eyes closed, and as Erickson's speaking, he's bobbing from right to left. And he's having his voice come more from the right, and then his voice come more from the left. The man has his eyes closed, so he doesn't see what Erickson is doing. The man develops motion sickness. Now, if you were on a boat and you were rocking on, on currents of water, you would hear voices coming slightly more from the right and slightly more from the left. And Erickson wanted to demonstrate that the locus of voice alone was a sufficient cue to cause a physiological response. I've never attempted that experiment. I don't want somebody getting motion sick in my area, but it's, it, it intrigues me that somebody could be thinking at that level of experience and if you read the totality of Milton Erickson, you would see that sometimes he was using posture and sometimes gesture and sometimes proximity and sometimes emphasis or underemphasis. And that more than any other therapist, and I've been blessed to have learned from many psychotherapeutic masters, but what I saw from Erickson was the most amount of precision in communication, trying to use in the totality of communication to have a uh, prompted effect. Uh, when Erickson was uh, in immobile for a period of time, do you th do you think that his experiences of inadequacies in certain aspects of his physical self helped to uh, explore these other areas of influence? Yeah. Erickson had polio when he was 17, 18 years old and was confined by uh, the ravages of polio and couldn't um, move very well. So he said that what he did in the farmhouse in which he grew up is, and as he studied the sounds that he could recognize his sisters coming up the steps and discriminate them from the way that they took their steps. Now, Erickson was one of the most remarkably perceptive human beings that I've ever met. I don't have Erickson's perceptiveness, and I didn't have polio either. And certainly polio was, as Erickson said, the best teacher that he ever had about human behavior. But that was a matter of reframing, too, and how can you make the best of a bad situation? How can you make something utilizable that other people would consider a severe constraint? As, as somebody that you know has created for a long period of time, it, and I know a lot of people that do, it's so interesting to hear that because a lot of the best work comes from the imperfection or the, the disadvantages that we have. It, it almost drives us to be innovative in a lot of ways. And it sounds like Erickson's work was in a lot of ways influenced by some by of his, his debilities. You know, when I met Erickson in 1973, he was confined to his wheelchair, had limited use of his legs. He could support himself momentarily as he moved from his wheelchair into his office chair. But even a year later, he wasn't even doing that and he was staying in a wheelchair. He had more use of his right arm than his left arm and uh, his left arm than his right arm and sometimes to eat he'd have to guide his right hand to his mouth with his left arm. So as somebody who had that many limitations physically, and yet he perfumed the atmosphere with possibilities, what can you do with what you have? So I went to see him as a student who wanted to learn about hypnosis, and I 
gave up that idea within the first day of being with him, and I just wanted to be around him to watch how he mastered life in spite of his difficulties and didn't seem to let his limitations define who he was. He was defined by his possibilities and what he could do with the in, in accord with the limitations that life had given him. What could creators take away from this lesson? Because most of them are at a disadvantage compared to their peers. You know, what what would be a, a I guess a piece of reflection or advice on? Well, it's a utilization, right? Utilization is the foundation of solutions. Uh, this was a f- f- phrase by one of Erickson's followers, semi-followers, Steve DeShazer, that utilization is the foundation of solutions. So um, uh, if there's a, a problem in there, there must be some way of utilizing it. So if an example was a case where Erickson was working with a woman who felt marred in her beauty because she had a space between her two front teeth. And uh, she was desperate. It was a complex case. But one of the things that Erickson had her do was to squirt water in between her two front teeth until she could be accurate at some distance at squirting water. She didn't know why she was doing this. But as Erickson learned, there was a man who happened to be at the water fountain when she uh, was working. And so Erickson suggested eventually to her that she would take a mouthful of water. And when he was there, she would squirt at him and then run down the hall. Well, he ran down the hall after her, and uh, they eventually went uh, out together and eventually got married. But what was seen as a limitation could be used in a constructive way. So this is the story of Erickson. Erickson added more cases to the literature of psychotherapy than any other therapist even to today. And all of them are based in this idea of utilization, response-ready, to take something that had been previously seen as a deficit and make it into a useful asset. That's such a powerful story. It, I, I always believe that you know, no matter what deficits we have or disadvantages we're at, it's, it's almost the hallmark of what ends up being the greatness that we create. Uh, and that, that story just speaks to that so well. Creators and artists and, and people that are trying to do unconventional things, they they have this vision of of the unconscious mind and, and even going back to some of the great creators like Da Vinci or Edison who used lucid dreaming as kind of a way to to intentionally uh, interact with this unknown world that we haven't had connection with. Uh, do you know of any ways that in current day we can we can formulate a better relationship or dialogue with this other part of our mind, you know, without using things like psychedelics, which have become very popular? Yeah. And I don't necessarily know that psychedelics are the answer using psychoactive substances. They may prove to you that you have more creativity than you realized, and that could be a reference experience for you. The um, idea of the unconscious as it started in psychotherapy was a seething cauldron of impulses that were bad, according to Freud. The unconscious was something that that had to be Um, contained and controlled, and you had to analyze and understand your unconscious drives. And Erickson was one of the people who talked about a benign unconscious, that there was something positive, and that the unconscious was a repository of learnings that could be activated and used. So that was a distinct shift in the field of psychotherapy, either analyze the unconscious impulses, it could 
aggressive impulses, sexual impulses, but you analyze them. And that was the uh, an essential part of psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And uh, Erickson's addition about uh, an unconscious that was benign, that was this repository of historical learnings, and that things can emerge spontaneously out of the unconscious. So it's that yeah, something will happen that is an unusual event, but you have to have something on the ball to know how to use it, like the uh, um, post-it notes. Yep. And it was a mistake and that, that invented this glue, but then they had to think this is something that could be useful. I don't remember that they called it post-it notes when they first created it, but post-it notes came out of that and you had something useful and they utilized an accident of nature and made it into something useful. But when we talk about an unconscious as if it was a thing, right? It's a process, and it's a, it's an there's an underlying series of skills and uh, discipline that have created uh, the possibility of uh, adding some density to the immediacy of the moment, adding some value to the immediacy of the moment. I don't, I I, I have, you know, problems when. You know, people say, okay, Erickson was talking to the unconscious mind, and yes, that's a metaphor. It's not a, a reality. But you could say that Dostoevsky was speaking to the unconscious mind, and Picasso was speaking to the unconscious mind, and Monet was speaking to the unconscious mind. They were trying to develop an understanding that could bring a simple idea to life. You know, you can say to people, yes, be more, more romantic in your relationship, and you can instruct them why it's a good thing to do to be more romantic, but the uh, you stimulate romance more with a, a glance or a look or a kiss or uh, a, a poem than you do by instructing it. So what is it that can be instructed, and what is it that needs to be realized? And the things that need to be realized, we could call those the contents of our unconscious, and then we're stimulating into play a realization, something that has already existed but uh, hasn't been activated. Every adolescent knows about responsibility because they've been indoctrinated into the concept, but rather than, rather than they need a moment to realize it, which could be a moment of falling in love or a moment of joining a sports team or a moment of having a job, and suddenly there's a realization and that crystallizes the understandings that have existed but haven't been activated. Are there any you know, memorable induction moments from the art world that you could think of? I was thinking about two moments, but they were already primed in my mind. Uh, when Salman Rushdie wrote Harun and the Sea of Stories, he, in the beginning of the book, he seeds uh, an idea that doesn't come into play until 20, 30 pages later, and uh, uh, it's not so noticeable. But uh, I remember looking at a James Foley movie, Perfect Stranger, and the opening images of looking into an eye where you're gradually shifted into looking into the eye that you don't know until the end of the movie why that was a, that clue was instrumental in tying the story together. And uh, you see at other places in the movie uh, pictures of the human eye that are unusually close up, but you don't recognize what it is that you're seeing, but you're being guided along the way until eventually that 
theme is activated and then you don't fully understand why it is that you are primed, but um, there's the hope that the prime awakens a representation and that that representation has an effect. Uh, and so I sought out James Foley because he was uh, available and I established this website, emotionalimpact.com or emotionalimpact.net, where I tried to interview artists. I was in, able to interview Stan Lee about how he set up a comic book. How did he set up a Spider-Man story? Uh, and uh, how did the cover that they were using set up the story that you were going to encounter as you read the comic book? So I had a project where I was trying to interview artists from various disciplines and find common themes that uh, a movie maker and a, a pianist, a piano composer, and a, a comic book um, writer would still be using some of the same artistic devices to create an effect of using them in slightly different ways. And how could I, as a communicator, use some similar devices at those moments when I wanted to have an evocative effect? But because our media literacy is so great, rather than trying to say to people, here's something de novo, having it, comparing it to something that they already know from reading a novel or seeing a movie or reading a comic book, that you could appeal to people's innate media literacy and uh, try to get people to think differently about the possibilities that are inherent in communication. So it's really not like I'm exploring the unconscious mind. It's that I'm exploring the devices that create effect. We don't pay attention to the effect that these devices are designed to have. We don't pay attention to strategic development as, as it happens, but we're influenced by the effect now, it may be, only maybe, that the person who is creating the effect can be consciously aware of the device and how the mechanics of the device work. But the person who's the recipient of the device cannot be aware because then they turn it into information. If you understand the device that's being used in telling a joke, it's no longer funny. The joke has to be a moment in which there's a shift and then suddenly humor emerges from the shift in levels. Um, and uh, um, it's not a necessity, it's just a prompt. Whether you find it funny or not is idiosyncratic and depends on who you're with, what the circumstances are, what the time of day is, what the staging looks like, et cetera, et cetera. So you're dealing with multivariate factors that uh, add impetus to the situation and uh, they're, they're not perfectly calculable. When you look at these things and you deconstruct them as a creator, you, you experience something, you deconstruct its elements, what you know, long-term goal would you like to accomplish with an understanding? I can't of even do it very well. Like uh, I get on an airplane, I'm going to some distant city overseas, and I put on the beginning of a movie, and I see, can I start to deconstruct the components that the movie maker is using, the scriptwriter is using, the lighting designer is using, the sound effects person is using. And I can only do that for about five minutes before I become engrossed in the movie and uh, I no longer can take an objective point of view about devices. The, the, the capacity of the medium is so great 
that I become involved in the experience rather than any than objectifying it into a series of deconstructed elements. When there's an overemphasis on the technical components that go in, it can sometimes be challenging to come up with new, you know, natural feeling work. Uh, how do you balance that as both someone that you know understands and deconstructs, but also creates authentic and impactful work yourself? Yeah, that's where the discipline is the mother of the spontaneity. So if you do something over and over and over again, um, communicating with gestures, which I do when I'm doing psychotherapy, I use using postures when I do psychotherapy, then I don't have to think about it anymore. Then I could add elaborations that make something come alive. The uh, greater the artist, the more they're able to use these elaborations to have impact and uh, that impact needs to stay at a quote-unquote unconscious level because if you're analyzing it, it just becomes information and it doesn't have the same evocative effect. Right. Yeah, it has a very technical feel to it almost. Um, there's a lot of you know, musicians that are just technical masterminds, but at the same time, it, it just comes off very technical and then without soul. Oh, without a soul, oh, overly designed and... Oh, overly constructed and uh, doesn't have the same felt sense about it and making the felt sense seamless, that's not so easy. Uh, Very difficult. I wonder if that translates into the world of mental health at all when we tend to, to overthink our experience or overthink our, our feelings or our, our internal world. Yeah, we are blessed with a cognitive capacity that's unsurpassed on the planet but that cognitive capacity can also get us into trouble by virtue of overthinking about something. And uh, um, there's some things that have to just happen and can't be uh, brought about by intentional design and some effects that just have to happen. So that's what I'm trying to do is to bring to the attention of psychotherapists some of the effects that they already know from their media literacy Simple, mo most simple example using metaphor, and uh, can can we insert something that is known to work in literature to create an effect and bring it into the realm of psychotherapy? Can we use any form of representation, like uh, using a, a gesture that's a straight line? Right now, you're like this, and I'm just holding my arm straight up in the air. And sometimes you're like this, and you want to be like this as quickly as possible, but something happens, and suddenly you're like this. But the, the important thing is how quickly you get back to this. Now, I'm, I'm just using representations by pushing my arm to the side and keeping my arm in a uh, um, vertical position, and I'm trying to illustrate an empathic understanding of where the client is and what the client wants to happen, but rather than limiting myself to using words. I use representations to create an effect because I, do, I believe that that effect is more limbically oriented, more to the, to the essential beginnings of communication, and not everything can be communicated with words, and sometimes effects have more resonant evocative value. You want to have something that has value into the indeterminate future and creating more adaptive living. The, this metaphorical component, I, I wonder if in art and in therapy, it, it almost 
allows the recipient, no matter who they are, to to co-create an experience in that yes. moment because it is ambiguous. Yes. I wonder if that's yes that that the recipient of the recipient of the communication needs to co-create the effect. You're just the, the communicator is just creating the effect, and if the effect is uh, like Martin Luther King using repetition, I had a dream, I had a dream, I had a dream, and uh, uh, elaborating on this e effect by creating a simple sentence. I can't imagine that he knew the Greek term for the repetition that he was rhetorically using to create interest in the themes that he was presenting, but uh, naturally just stumbled upon it, and, uh, and then somebody else comes along and says, oh, he was just using such and such uh, literary device. It's a great art, you know, great creations and great inventions almost always mean something different to different people, even as the same thing. Well, you can't, you know, you can't say that everybody's going to have the same effect to Shakespeare uh, uh, having Romeo say Juliet is the sun. Does that mean she's luminous? Does that mean she's bright? Does that mean that she's warm? Does that mean that she's a source of life? What does it mean? We don't know, but we have the felt sense that Romeo is enraptured in, 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 in with Juliet. We, we, we get the sense of the metaphor. We may, not, we may have a different way of interpreting it, but we more or less, all of us get the same effect. And that's the power of metaphor rather than the power of using, you know, she has beautiful hands and beautiful eyes and she has beautiful lips and you know, she has lovely skin and this is who Juliet is, but rather than using descriptive language, using evocative language, and then you get the felt sense of Romeo being enraptured with her. So uh, a metaphor almost uh, fills in where the weaknesses of informatic language fail. Exactly. Chat GPT, um, which is based on the language model that it, it learns from, um, and sounds like a lot of what you do also is to look at you know, components of writing and, and language and metaphor. Uh, I wonder what's possible if something like that understands not only the constructs and interactions and behaviors behind our language, but if it adds on additional layers, sound, uh, uh, metaphor, uh, changing different aspects of our virtual environment to, you know, incite a, an experience in someone. Yeah, it would have to be done by design and by being able to program things. So whether or not you could create a program that would generate spontaneity, I don't know about that yet, because there has to be something that can't be programmed that has to emerge out of the situation, like um, in, in, a, in a poetic uh, sense. If Robert Frost is using repetition, tree at my window, window tree, your sash is lowered when night comes on but let there never be curtain drawn between you and me. And so you get his reverence for nature. Now, could you program a computer to use repetition and to use metaphor and to use the multiple meaning of words? You could program the computer to do that, but I don't know that it would come out with the same spontaneous beauty of that first opening stanza of a Robert Frost poem. Tree at my window, window tree, your sash is lowered. What's a sash? A sash is what a prince would wear to put medals on. But a sash for a window might be a shade. Your sash is lowered when night comes on, not your curtain is lowered. So could you program a uh, computer to do something like that? 
something like that, possibly, but the uh, inventiveness, the intrinsic inventiveness of that, I don't know how you could create an algorithm that would lead you to that kind of inventiveness. There has to be something that is uh, um, a discrete shift in thinking to be able to create a representation of using sash to mean curtain and to use a uh, tree at my window, window tree. Is that a window tree or is that a tree at my window? And the ambiguities of language, can you, com can you get a computer to understand how to use the ambiguity of language? I, I don't know. Um, and they use a metaphor, let there never be curtain drawn between you and me, the, the world of nature and the world of Robert Frost. But um, it's more, you know, one of my hobbies is memorizing poetry because then I, I can understand the effects that poets use to create uh, a meaningful realization in the, uh, in the listener. And um, so I, you know, have a little compendium of poems that I've memorized and uh, trying to understand those devices and then at evocative moments trying to use some of those devices to have similar effect, maybe, but not as a guarantee. So I'm not working with algorithms. I'm working with heuristics, simplifying assumptions. It's true. I don't know that artificial intelligence could ever recreate uh, Allen Ginsberg, for example. Yeah, or E. Cummings suddenly using the placement of concepts on a page as a way of increasing the power of the poetic device that he was using. Um, so it's the purview of artists to take the rules and regulations that have existed prior to them and show how they can be bent and folded and stapled and reformed in order to create things that haven't existed before. And uh, I don't know enough about computer programming to know whether you can get AI to be able to create those effects, but if it can, you know, more power to it. When you look at society today and you look at how we've evolved over the generations of human beings before us, do you see a evolution of humanity from an internal awareness perspective or an existential perspective, or are we regressing? I don't think we're regressing. I think we have less wars than we've had in the past and that we increasingly have limited uh, human con conflict and moved more in the direction of human cooperation. I think we're becoming more civilized and not as quickly as I would like. We still retain some of the uh, exigencies of being involved in the uh, you know, barbaric conflicts of uh, the Roman Colosseum, but... Uh, you know, gradually uh, human evolution has a course that is more conducive to humanity and less conducive to strife. We're more um, knowledgeable about what to do to live a better life. So I, I, I'm not really an expert on looking at cultural trends. I'm more expert at looking at psychological predicaments and psychological resources. But uh, I have more hope for humanity than... Uh, uh, feeling uh, dour about our possibilities of regressing in our evolution rather than advancing our evolution. The only reason I ask is I think a lot of sentiment around things like social media and the internet as it exists today, there's kind of this diffuse layer of human interaction that's less organic and there's less accountability almost and there's more asynchronous communication. 
and people are wondering if perhaps, you know, engaging, having that almost as part of our identity now is somehow a deficit to our self-awareness as individuals. Could be, but I, I don't see it that way. I'm more optimistic about the possibilities. I, you know, grew up before television and, uh, uh, when television came out, people were concerned about all of the limitations that it would create on human interaction, but uh, it hasn't uh, proven uh, to to uh, have had that much of a detrimental impact. There are possibilities in how the medium is used. So I hope that uh, we uh, continue to evolve in our understandings and be more to our essentially human cooperative nature rather than uh, some of the competitive design of our ancestors. Is there anything that artists or creators could learn from the world of psychotherapy or even psychology and apply to their work that well, might be interesting? Um, it depends on how, you know, psychotherapy is such a fractured field. Is the unit of analysis behavior? Is the unit of analysis emotion? Is the unit of analysis memory? Is the unit of analysis relationship patterns? So experts in psychotherapy from 1885 to, to even today have explored one channel, like explored cognitions or explored behavior, or explored affect or explored history. And they, they've built theories around some aspect. There really isn't a comprehensive uh, 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 field of psychotherapy, there are, it's fractionated, uh, and people are very religious about their dogma. So you work with cognitions, or you work with uh, people's felt sense, or you work with relationship patterns if you're a family therapist. So there's no right way of doing psychotherapy. And uh, all of these aspects of uh, human communication, they haven't come to a point where they can be uh, clarified in a cohesive framework, uh, that is uh, a long way away, I think, in psychotherapy from having a, a, com a, com a cohesive model of how to approach the task of being a therapist. You know, you, there's so many different ways of doing it, and uh, all of them can lead to salutary results for the client. I tell clients not to shop for schools of psychotherapy, but to shop for the people who they feel are most influential in helping them to get a felt sense of what it is that they need to do. Any last words of advice or any reflections on mistakes that you've made over the course of your life that creators could learn from to be better versions of themselves? Well, uh, I, if I recounted all of the mistakes that I've made, we would have more material for a discussion than we've had in the time that we've just been spending together. So they're just inevitable part of life that uh, we all learn by trial and error. And fortunately, uh, the errors that I've made, as painful as they've been, as costly as they've been, haven't stopped me from continuing the process of trying to make something good happen in the world by virtue of the time that I have on the planet. So um, my time on the planet is somewhat limited now. I'm 75 years old, so uh, I uh, still have a few things to accomplish. And uh, a few more mistakes to make along the way, and uh, I try to be intelligent enough to make mistakes only once, but that doesn't always happen. This is a, a stimulating and exploratory conversation. Dr. Jeffrey Zag, thank you for joining us today. It was a great conversation. I hope it proves interesting to the people who listen to it and uh, proves educational to them, and thank you for the opportunity. 
This has been great. Well, I hope we continue the conversation.